Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. The entire first season of This Time Tomorrow is available now to binge from start to finish. In this new iHeart series presented by T-Mobile for Business, join me, Osvaloshin, and Kara Price as we explore the exciting possibilities of the next generation of connectivity. From smart cities to future farms, you'll find out just how much could change with future 5G networks. Listen to This Time Tomorrow on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. everybody and welcome to Movie Crush. Charles W. Chuck Bryant here in New York City. Not at the home studio at Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia, but at CDM Studios in uh, New York. And I guess Midtown is where we are. And I had a trip and anytime, as everyone knows, anytime I, I do a trip to New York or LA, I try to squeeze in as many in-person movie crushes as I can. And I was very lucky on this trip because I got to do five and these were the first two. And uh, this one is uh, Mr. Tony Shalhoub, wonderful, great, I'm going to just go ahead and say legendary uh, screen talent, Tony Shalhoub, who you know from, boy, he's been in a bunch of stuff over the years, uh, everything from from searching for Bobby Fischer to Barton Fink, uh, one of my favorite movies. First thing I saw him in was Barton Fink. Uh, Big Night, the wonderful independent film from the mid-90s. Uh, he was, of course, on Wings. Uh, the TV show for many years, uh, Men in Black, uh, The Imposters, Galaxy Quest. He played Fred in Galaxy Quest. Uh, and a lot of people know him as Monk on television. And uh, right now he is on Broadway. Uh, we talk a little bit about that in the interview. Um, they have moved back to New York, he and his lovely wife, Brooke Adams. And uh, on Broadway, doing a musical, which is kind of cool for him and uh, challenging himself in new ways. Uh, and also, of course, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which uh, actor Kevin Pollack, one of my previous guests, is on. One of my favorite shows that I've raved about before, and Tony just has such a great part in that. And uh, our mutual friend, uh, my high school buddy Jim Isa, hooked me up with Tony uh, for this trip, and I'm very grateful for that uh, because I've just always been a big fan. And it was so wonderful to sit down and talk about The Sting uh, with Tony and get his take. And it turns out we are two dudes who love movies about con men. And this is probably the pinnacle of con men movies. And so here we go with the great Tony Shalhoub on The Sting. That's one of the fun things, I think, about the first parts of these interviews, which is sort of digging into uh, the the past, the, the fandom of your youth and uh, where movies really kind of came in for folks, um, whether it was going to the movies with friends when they were teenagers or renting movies as a family. 
Um, no, for us, there was it was for me coming up. It was way before. Where'd you grow rentals. up? Green Bay, Wisconsin. Okay, I think I knew that. And uh, you know, it was before the days of renting. Certainly, I mean, you went to the there were maybe three or four movie houses, uh-huh. I mean, other than like say the outdoor theaters in the summer, right? Which we used to also. Oh, they do, did that. You know? Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, there are not that many of those around left, but there's. Um, um, we used to do that. You know, in the when the in the fair weather, and uh, you know, those were usually like the Vincent Price movies, right? You know, the horror movies, and uh-huh. those kinds of things. But that's one of the fun things about living. My wife grew up in Ohio, so in the cold, sort of Midwest, people really enjoy the springs and summers. Yeah, kind of don't take it for granted, and uh, there's a lot of outdoor stuff going on. You really take advantage. Yeah, and Los Angeles too now does a lot of the. Um, well, you don't live there anymore, now. Are you in New York? I'm back in New York as of about a year and a half ago. Yeah. How has that been? We love being back. Yeah? yeah. I mean, L.A. was great. It was right. good to us. And, you know, coming from a really cold place and living in the Northeast for years and uh-huh. years, uh, L.A. was, you know, that the weather was a welcome relief. Sure. And, you know, we stayed really busy out there. I would live there for 25 years. Right. But I used to live in New York before that in the 80s. But um, now being back, uh-huh. I don't know, it's just we're just – we're just loving it. Yeah. And I've been working more in New York the last mm-hmm. five years, too. Not just in theater, although I've been doing a lot of that, but right. in other projects. So so it's uh, it's it's great being back. That's great. I know um, you're in a Broadway show right now. Yeah. I'm I'm actually just about to exit that show because okay. I have to go back to the to second season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, an Amazon series that I started last season. It's such a great show. They are unbelievable writers, and That's so great. We have this woman, Rachel Brosnahan, who's the lead, who's mm-hmm. just a revelation, and um, we're having a great time with it. Yeah, it's so great. Um, I, my wife and I watched it. Uh, I think about two months ago, we watched the whole thing through in about a week and a half. Yeah, and, well, there's um, only eight for the first season, right? Which is great. You know, it's yeah. uh, there's no filler at all, and it's just such a tight show, and it looks amazing. The, the set design and uh, the costumes, yeah, and it, you can just tell it's a it's a labor of love for everyone. Yeah, and we have it's a great cast. We have uh, uh, Alex Borstein uh-huh. and Marnie, so good. and 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 uh, recurring characters like Kevin Pollack, who I know did your right podcast, uh-huh. hilarious. And um, so so we're I think they're talking about doing ten for the second season. Oh, that's even good. We did eight the first mm-hmm. go around. So. So that'll uh, that'll that's going to take me away from the play, right? Boy, they just did such a great job uh, recreating New York of that era. It's yeah. just so authentic looking, and she and Rachel is just um, astoundingly good. <laughs> it's she's ridiculous how good she is. Yeah, she's so young, and but but seems so seasoned. Uh huh. And she's a hard worker, boy, because you know she's in almost right. every scene. Yeah. So her days are long, and she's she's in. I'm sure almost every day of the episode. Uh-huh. Um, but she's got a great, you know, a really great attitude. Well, and just the part for parts for you and Kevin too are just so great. Um, just so meaty, and uh, the woman who plays your wife is so good, Maren Hinkle. Yeah. Yes, everybody's just so terrific. Thanks. Just a wonderful show, well deserved. Uh, and the Broadway show. 
How long have you been on that one? Uh, the band's visit. Right. Yeah. Jim said it was great. It, it, it is, is a pretty cool thing. We'd started it, we did it off Broadway last year, a limited run at the Atlantic Theater on 20th Street, uh, for maybe a month, two months. And then, uh, there was, it, it caught fire in such a beautiful way. Mm-hmm. There, uh, they got a lot of backers and investors, and so they were able to move it uptown. We started previews in October, opened in November. It'll run and run and run as long as, you know, it's a commercial Broadway run, so right. it runs as long as they sell tickets. Um, I've had a terrific time. I'm working with an unbelievably talented group of actors and musicians and singers. And Are you singing? I, I actually am singing in this, uh, unbelievable as it sounds. <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, I've never really done musicals before, okay. and I really didn't, uh, it, it it took a little arm twisting to get me to do this because just because I was so insecure. About, oh, really? About getting out there and well, but I I yeah. um they helped me. They gave me a vocal coach and they, you know, put the song in somewhere near my very limited range, and um, it's it's been a it's been um you know it's going outside your comfort comfort zone. Right. Sometimes is a this is an excellent way to um you know to uh. Well, to rediscover humility in your, yeah. in your life. What a what a fun thing for you too. After uh, you know to come to New York after being away for so many years, and then you're on Broadway. You're in this amazing, you know, Golden Globe winning TV show that everyone loves. So New York is treating you well so far. It's been a good year. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so we were talking though before about. Um, and by the way, for those of you listening, I said that uh, Jim said it was great. Jim is our mutual friend. Who, yeah, Jim Isa, one of my best, well, one of my best friends for my whole life since, um, uh, eighth or ninth grade. Uh, and then how did you and Jim meet actually? We actually met because I have family down in Atlanta. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, Jim was part of a company called the Whole World Theater. I think it was a, oh, yeah. an improv. Mm-hmm. We used to go and see them and, um, we befriended a number of them and, uh, Another another friend of Jim's, Lance Crawl, yeah, who I, I believe Lance. now is back in Atlanta after he is. a stint in L.A. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, they volunteered to become part of a uh, an independent film that I directed about mm, 18 years ago around that time um, called Made Up, which my wife and her sister um, starred in and wrote and produced. I saw that movie. Yeah, and Jim is in it. It's uh-huh. kind of a mockumentary about a you know about a, the making of a movie. And um, and Jim and I have been friends ever since. Yeah, that's great. Have you directed since then? No, no. And really? I really would love to get back to it because uh-huh. uh, it was. Uh, I'm a control freak at heart, and and it was uh, it's gratifying. I bet. Yeah. Well, you're a busy guy, though. I'm so well. Especially <laughs> just lately, I've become. I think busier than I've been in in decades. That's fun, and you that's have good. kids here too, right? I have two grown daughters. They um, and that's another reason why we left LA. You know, they they moved, both moved to the East Coast, and uh, we kind of were wondering what the hell we were still doing right. on the West Coast. And um, yeah, so they're they're making their lives here. Yeah, my so. wife and I joke we um, we adopted a daughter two and a half years ago, and. Uh, this is going to be like our only kid. You know, we kind of got got a kid later in life for many reasons. And um, we basically have just made the commitment like, you know, wherever she wants to go, we're just going to let her know. We're probably not going to be too far behind you. So yeah. it's like, where are we going to retire one day? Well, wherever Ruby wants That's to live, right. probably. That's exactly right. 
It's fun. Um, so we were talking, though, about growing up in Wisconsin. Uh, was your family in entertainment or interested in stuff like that? Or Well, <laughs> that's a that's an excellent question. Um, no, uh, my one of my I'm from a big family, mm-hmm. 10 kids. I'm the second youngest. And one of my older sisters was pursuing theater and acting in high school and then went on left. You know, after high school, she went to uh, to a to an acting school in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. uh, part, of, part of the Pittsburgh Playhouse, I believe. And um, so I kind of followed in her footsteps. Okay. And, so the influence of an uh, older sibling. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, in, in, in where I grew up in Green Bay, it was a, at that time a town of maybe 65,000 people. Now right. it's maybe 100,000. Uh-huh. Um, it wasn't a lot of venues for, you know, uh, live right. theater. Other than if you know community theater, of course, and academic theater and that sort of thing, right? But um, and, and, a, and a number of really excellent uh, summer theaters in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and uh, but but it took kind of picking up and getting out of there and right and uh, you know to to kind of find my path. Sure, but what was your family were uh, they into just watching movies and going to the movies? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, my siblings were, you know, there were, again, a small town. We were within mm-hmm. walking distance of most of these theaters. There, right. there weren't that many. There were, when I was growing up, it wasn't like the multiplex mm-hmm. thing. It was just these big, old, beautiful, right. large uh, theaters mm-hmm. where I first go, went when I was a kid. You know, sometimes you'd go on Saturday for, you know, two, three, triple feature. You know, yeah. you'd sit there for hours just. Mm-hmm. You know, until your brain just went numb. Yeah, that's great. It was fun. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Uh, I kind of miss – we in Atlanta, we have the, the big Fox Theater, which is um, it's like a 5,000-seat – Wow. Um, yeah. I don't think it was an, originally a movie theater, but a performance venue. But they will do summertime uh, movie series there. Mm-hmm. So when I was a kid, um, we kind of lived in the suburbs, and my mom would take us into the city – and watch, uh, they would show like The King and I, and that's where I saw Rear Window, oh, and uh, just, just some of these movies that I probably would have never been exposed to as a kid in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, and they had the the organ player, and they would show the cartoons and kind of recreate that experience. Wonderful. Yeah, it's really, really neat. And I know other cities are doing stuff like that now. It's kind of kind of cool to see that revival. Yeah. You know. Restoring these beautiful places. Here's the thing. Saving money with GEICO is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. Hey, it's Ben, Henry, and Marcus, hosts of The Last Podcast on the Left. Our show's dedicated to uncovering hilariously horrifying stuff. And now we're only on Spotify. Join, Join us. If you want. Obviously, we'd never force anyone to just blindly... Join us. That'd be crazy. But if you like stories about doomsday cults who do exactly that and more, please... Join us. On Spotify. Visit Spotify.com slash Last Podcast to listen free. So I watched The Sting. Had, go ahead had and, you seen it a lot? Had you, uh, were you familiar with it? I had never seen The Sting. Come on. I know. And it, oh. 
I don't know why. Because, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a film buff, obviously, and I think I had it confused with The Hustler, first of all, which was the Newman. Early, early Paul Newman. Yeah. Right. But I didn't know it was that much earlier. Uh, it was 1961. Yeah, and the, and the Sting came out in 73. I right. Yeah, and this was, um, we've already covered on the show, uh, Paul F. Tompkins, the comedian, he chose Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Another, yes. I mean, there was, it was kind of a toss-up <laughs> between these two movies. For, Butch Cassidy was uh, two or three years before The Sting. Right. Same, you know, same lead actors. Uh-huh. And, same uh, director. Same director, uh, George Roy Hill. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they're both amazing films. I just, there's something about The Sting that, I don't, I don't know. The tone of it, I could go on for hours. Yeah, well, we can go on for 30 Good. minutes. Let's do that. <laughs> so like you said, 73, George Roy Hill, uh, written by David Ward. Um, and one of the things that struck me about uh, Butch Cassidy, too, is the crew that he would put together was, I mean, Edith Head did the costumes mm-hmm. and these legends of Hollywood yeah. uh, would shoot the picture and do the set design and do the costumes. And uh, it's just amazing. Robert uh, Surtes... Uh, Sirtis shot it. He shot Ben Hur in the Last Picture Show, and so it was just a time in that in the seventies where you could gather just your crew were legends. That's right. You know, it's amazing. The, in this, in the Sting, the attention to detail, you know, in in every way, you know, the the, the costumes, the set, the the, mm-hmm. the the streets. I'm not. They must have shot it on a back lot. So yeah, it was like universal. universal, right? Yeah. But it is. It, it's just they. They just. They didn't miss anything mm-hmm. and you can you can really really feel it it's it's your back it's it's the depression it's 1932 or something mm-hmm. and it's uh it, it's it's so stylish and and yet you know there there are a lot of movies from the 60s and the 70s mm-hmm. that are um you know for lack of a better word they're just they're 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 trendy they 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 just were of you know, they were they were kind of just of that t- period. They're there's they're not timeless. They look a little kind of creaky, and mm-hmm. it's the st- style of acting, the style of shooting, it just it doesn't hold up. Mm-hmm. Whereas there are certain movies you mentioned earlier, like Rear Window, certain Hitchcock classic films like North by Northwest, those right. kinds of things. They are there. There isn't really. There isn't really a fashion or a style to the to the acting to the behavior. It's timeless, right? And and I think this film, this thing, is like that. I watched it again recently. You know, you've got all of these brilliant character people. You got Charles Durning and, mm-hmm. and Robert Shaw, and Ray Walston, Ray, Wal- Ray Walston, yeah. And and uh, it's 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 phenomenal how clean it is and how sort of unadorned the performances are mm-hmm. which isn't really true of some some movies are great when you see them and they're good for two or three or four years after that and then ugh yeah. they just get really they just feel like they're growing mold on them you know they're right. just, <laughs> because because they were working on a certain style of uh, that 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 in that moment people had an appetite for but it was sort of like a you know, right. bell-bottom trousers. It just it just goes out, and good luck bringing that back. Yeah, and that that kind of struck me too. Is this? Um, it had a definitely had a timeless quality in that it's. Um, I was trying to think of how to put it last night when I was making my notes. 
it it felt like a movie in a good sense. Yeah. Like it wasn't like here's a slice of real life. Like you you could you could kind of tell it was on a back lot, and that sure. was okay. Yeah. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. That's what I'm talking about in terms of the style. Right. You're you know it's told in a kind of almost a storybook way. Absolutely. But but at the same time, you know, it, yes, you're you you're always aware that you're watching a film, but the but the. First of all, the actors are so engaging. They're mm-hmm. so first, they're great to look at. Sure, you have you know, Robert Rutherford. Shaw, who's got oh know, yeah the most amazing face. It's got depth and complexity, and and he's not a guy that I mean, you know, this is before Jaws, now. right? So this is a guy that I think he was in a Bond, a Bond movie, maybe mm-hmm. Doctor No or something. He played a heavy, but he wasn't exactly a household name and that familiar a face to American audiences anyway. Right. And so, right away, we're, we're, there's, a, there's a mystery there. We want to know, mm-hmm. what is this guy? How dangerous really is this guy? And and then you've got Radford and Paul Newman who are... They're so effortless. Can, and they can, yeah, they just make it look like they're breathing in and out. And they, mm-hmm. they're funny, you know, and they're kind of like, they're, 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 they're clever, they're sarcastic, but they're... They they bring enormous heart to it. Mm-hmm. They're vulnerable, but they're savvy. You know, they got it all going on. Yeah. And what I love about this movie too is that, unlike certain movies of today uh, and recently, you know, it it's not afraid to take its time. Mm-hmm. It wants to tell the story, but it 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 lays it out in a an interesting way. But not it's not slow in plotting. Right. But it. It it draws you in, and it doesn't. You know, it's not cut, cut, cutty. Mm-hmm. You you get to know, and you get invested in all of these different uh, in in their whole crew of of con men. Right. Yeah. Uh, it. I mean, Redford and Newman for people of uh, like younger than me, even that <laughs> they don't maybe, know who Paul Newman is. Right. It's it's, it's crazy. Me. Like if you want to see real movie stars, which is sort of it's hard these days to pinpoint. Anyone uh, with that kind of gravitas, um, but they were they were still everyman. It's weird how they pulled off that yeah. bait and switch as the the handsomest dudes in the world, but who were so charming and so clever. Uh, but they felt like you could also have been their pals. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, and, and I mean, they're just Robert Redford back then was just uh, man, just one of the best. He really was. And what's what's cool in this movie is, I mean, he was obviously he did do comedies too, but but in this movie he's, <laughs> I don't think people really appreciate how, you know, how great his timing was mm-hmm. and how kind of subtle, you know, his uh, his comedic looks and comedic takes were, um, and the two of them together, you know, having have been having been connected at the hip in right. in Butch and Butch Cassidy, uh-huh. uh, they were. Really, you know, they were like they were like a doubles team. You know, right. I mean, they just they they just knew every uh, every every aspect of each other's uh, mm-hmm. you know, style. And, yeah, you get the feel. I don't. I mean, I'm not sure how it was on set, but when you watch it, it feels like well, they probably did that in one take or two takes. I'm sure. Like they probably didn't have to work very hard. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's yeah, probably not true. I, well, I don't know. It's 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 probably true. They um. Yeah, there's 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 so much good stuff in there. Uh, so the story is set in motion by um, what's called a pigeon drop, which 
I'm a sucker for any grifter con man story. I don't know what it is about it, but it's always House of just games. The Matt and the mammoth movie. Do you know that movie? Oh, sure. Yeah. Great. Film. Yeah. That's a great one too. Yeah. Um, so it's set up by a pigeon drop with uh, Robert Redford and who I didn't know was, uh, James Earl Jones, father, Robert, uh, played Luther, uh, at the beginning. I did not know that. He had a, a face in it. So I looked him up and, it said his name was uh, Robert Earl Jones, and I went, "Well, that's a coincidence." I didn't track that as so. That's yeah, that's James that Jones' dad. I uh, didn't even know his father was an actor. Me neither. Uh, so they had that great scene in the alley at the beginning. That um, I'm also a big fan of movies that where there's the inciting incident that just kind of kicks off the whole story. Yeah, uh, let's get on with it right away. Right, and in yeah. this one, it's a pigeon drop uh, against the wrong guy, who it turns out that their mark was. Um, worked for Robert Shaw's character, this Irish gangster. Well, I don't know if you'd call him a gangster. I guess you could. Doyle Lonigan, yeah. Right. Uh, but who was just a very bad man. So they yeah. crossed very the wrong guy. dude. Yeah. And uh, that just sort of sets the story in motion. And everything after that is Redford, you know, because Luther is killed. Um, and, and another cool thing I thought was, was just the character, Redford's uh, character of Johnny, um, there's just not a prejudice bone in his body, you know, when he's, he's great friends with this, uh, African American man and his yeah, family. Yeah, he was kind of like his mentor. The, the, uh, um, Luther was his mentor. Yeah, absolutely. Teacher. So of the time, 1930s, is such a likable character to see him at his family's house. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, it would never occur to him to be a prejudiced man. Exactly. Uh, that's just a great, like, character trait to watch, uh, on screen. And, so he immediately, of course, the whole movie for him is about revenge, um, not even about the money in grifting this this gangster, but he just wants to get him. Avenging Luther's death. Right. At his but own also, game. while he's trying to do that, he has the added wrinkle, the added complication of being uh, a marked man. He's being sort of chased and right. they're, they're, Lonigan's people are trying to kill him, too. Right. But they don't which, know it's him. But they they don't know it's him. Right. Some people some some of them do, but uh-huh. what Lonigan doesn't. So it's it's a it's a really yeah it's a really interesting twist. Yeah, and and Newman of course doesn't come in until the end of Act One, um, which is I mean that's a what movie does that these days? Save someone of that status yeah. to enter the picture? You know, thirty minutes in. Yeah. Uh, and his in his first line to him, you know, glad to meet you, kid. You're a real horse's ass. <laughs> Just such a great way to introduce that character. <laughs> There's a little bit of butch to him, I yeah. think, to uh, to his character. So great. Uh, so um, they obviously, you know, uh, set up the sting, which is the long con, uh, which it kind of dawned on me about halfway through the long con that it's really just a big theatrical production that they put on. That's what's so great about this. They've assembled uh, the, the the director has brought in all of these amazing character actors. And that's why, for me, this movie has sort of withstood the test of time. Mm-hmm. I've revisited it, you know, uh, well, every few years, really. Yeah. Whenever I, you know, whenever I would be on, it's one of those movies where you, if you, if you're flipping channels and you say, you just got to watch it sure. again. Um, it, 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 it's full of all these great character actors. And, I'm being a character actor myself. I, I I I related to this. I'm just so grateful. I mean, how many really? How many movies now do you see nowadays? Mm-hmm. Do you see where you get so many great? Uh, you know, you can't really call them small parts because again, each of these guys gets t- terrific moments to play. Mm-hmm. 
sometimes several terrific moments. Um, Harold Gould. Uh, now, which one is he? Harold Gould is the, the the tall one with the mustache. Is he the one that was on the lookout? And, yes. Okay, because yes. I've seen him in a million things. He's over been the in years. a million. Again, a terrific character great. actor, uh, whose name in this movie is Kid Twist. Right. I mean, come on. <laughs> if I open a thing and my character's name right. is Kid, I, I'm going to sign up. Okay. I want that name. Uh-huh. And um, and he's in the in the movie. He's not a kid. He's in. No. You know, he's a guy in his sixties <laughs> probably. Yeah. But you just know that he's been doing this since he was, you know, running on the street, like like the Artful Dodger, something right. out of Oliver Twist. Mm-hmm. You know. Um. So I I was started to say that there's all these great character actors, and like you were saying, it's they're basically putting on a. Everybody's got a part to play. Mm-hmm. It's it's relatively unscripted, but they're all really they're they're great con men, which makes them great actors. Yeah, and so uh, if you if you haven't seen the movie, I try to encourage folks to watch it before the episode uh, airs. But uh, the long con they set up is they basically have to set up a an entire fake what's called a wire room. Which it's sort is, of like an off-track betting, old, right. old school off-track betting room, but yeah. an Ill- illegal one, correct? Yeah. <laughs> right. right. So they have essentially, you know, they wouldn't call it this in the movie, but they have like a location scout and someone who produces it, and they have actors that come in and pr- set people and prop Props, people. Yeah. And it was just set like, designer. It was yeah. like putting on a movie or a stage play. Exactly. It was that's, really interesting. That's it's it's the pl- it's the movie within the movie or the play within the play, you might say. Right. And in uh, in the uh, side room, they have Ray Walston as the uh, horse race caller, uh, because that's you know they had that great scene early on when they're trying to figure out how to get this guy uh, back, and they said you know that he plays cards, yeah. plays poker, and so they knew that could be the entry point. And there's yeah. the great scene on the train yeah. when Newman stumbles in, yeah, pretending to be drunk, <laughs> right, and just so crass. Yeah. And, uh, Belching and and he keeps mispronouncing Lonigan's name and drives yeah. him insane. Yeah, and it was such a great approach to take because I'm gonna get this guy's goat. I gotta take some of his money in this poker game, yeah. and then he will want to get back at me. And all of a sudden, he's and then he's in he's me. hooked. Yeah, that's the hook. <laughs> and his, yeah. of course, the great line when he comes in to the poker game. Sorry, I'm late. I was taking a crap. Yeah, <laughs> so good. And it was and it's, all, it's like a gentleman's game, all these exactly. kind of high rollers. Right. And they even go and get him a tie that he puts on because, yeah. you know, we usually wear a, a necktie in this game. Uh, and then he beats him in the poker game. And they're, they're both cheats, but he out-cheats him, mm-hmm. which drives uh, Robert Shaw's character crazy. Yeah. Which is it's not even move. that. And as, as Paul Newman's character says later, it's not, not, it's not that much money that they win from. I mean, I mean, relative to what this guy is really worth. Right. But he just cannot stand, mm-hmm. can't stand losing. Right. And he can't stand being beat. Mm-hmm. And he can't stand being embarrassed, which is what that was the Newman part. really humiliates him. Mm-hmm. Because even after Newman wins the big pot in the final hand, mm-hmm. um, and he says to Shaw, uh, you owe me 15,000, pal, or mm-hmm. whatever number, 15 grand. Shaw reaches into, uh, Lonigan reaches into his jacket, and of course his, his wallet, he's been pickpot. He's, you know, yeah, Eileen Brennan had him. picked, yeah. Yeah, she, she, she picked him clean, and so he doesn't have the money to pay, mm-hmm. you know, the poker debt. <laughs> Further humiliation, yeah. and, uh, and that's what follows is uh, when Redford goes, 
to collect the money, he goes to a train compartment that Lonigan's in. And Robert Shaw says, which is my favorite line in the movie, he says, your boss is quite a card player, Mr. Kelly. How does he do it? <laughs> and Redford says, he cheats. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that's the whole movie right there. Yeah. The, the, um, it is a fellow fan of, of con movies and grifter movies. I mean, this is just maybe the, the peak of that genre. It is. And how and, and, complex and as I say, the grift was. It's timeless. You can't, you know, there's nothing sort of clunky or old fashioned about this movie. Or, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a period piece. takes place in the 30s, but... It didn't have to, though. The music is timeless. Mm-hmm. It's ragtime. Right. I mean, that's ragtime's always going to be fun, and it's always going to be... Mm-hmm. It's always going to kind of come around and come around. And uh, the soundtrack is it's amazing. Scott Joplin music re- reinterpreted by Marvin Hamlish. Yeah. Was that who it was? Uh, and I think that one, I mean, this thing won seven Academy Awards. Uh, yeah, the music, editing, costume, great Edith Head, art direction, script, director, and picture, which is just nuts. Nuts. <laughs> do you remember the first time you saw it? I actually do because, it, you know, it, it was, it's one of those movies. Where, first of all, I, I, I was, I played poker, you know, since I was a kid. You know, we were just, mm-hmm. would see, I'd see my, father and my uncle doing playing cards and then we all got into it as kids and we were like for pennies or for even for chips no money whatever right. didn't matter but we played a lot of cards when we were young and my friends in high school and we played nickel dime quarter blah 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 mm-hmm. and so right away and i was also around this time i kind of became aware of I don't know if it's when they first started televising it or when i became aware of the kentucky derby right you know every spring right it would and I just, I, I, I just, I mean, I was going to go, I wasn't going to bet on the horses, but I just love the whole idea of mm-hmm. the horse racing, um, odds and things. So r- right, right there. I mean, this movie just, it, it had me from the very beginning. Uh-huh. Um, and I was a big fan of Butch Cassidy too. Right. And I wanted to see these guys not get their asses shut off at the end. Yeah, yeah. So were you in, in Wisconsin when it when it came out the first time you saw uh, yeah, it? Yeah, I was. Yeah, not to date myself right. too much, but <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, was seventy three? It came out right. Yeah. So I was, you know, call, let's say I was in college. Okay, let's just say. Um, let's just say that. <laughs> um, yeah. So it had a, it, it it and I do remember seeing it for the first time and just I did not want it to end. I didn't. I, I once I was in the middle of this. You know, in the middle of the film, I, I just thought I could, I could just watch these guys forever. Yeah, yeah, they're endlessly charming <sighs> as a duo, and I wish they would have made fifteen movies together. Yeah, lifelong friends though, which is great. True. I remember there was a it's show. Just, it's just a disheartening to you know when you talk to younger younger generations now. Yeah, you know it's. Oh, that's the guy that makes the salad dressing and the right. popcorn. You know, that to me is just, I mean, which is also a great thing because it's a charity. It's a great legacy for but, sure. Right. I mean, I grew up on really early Paul Newman movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, way before Redford was on the scene. Right. HUD and Cool Hand Luke. Way before that, there was a, one of his first movies called Somebody Up There Likes Me, which if you have never seen it, I highly recommend. I don't know. He must have been 19 or something when he did this movie. We can wow. look it up. He plays a street kid. He becomes a boxer. Oh. He, you know, he's he's like he gets, he's a juvenile delinquent basically. He, you know, he gets put into the system and uh-huh. he goes from one 
you know, sort of reformatory to another. And it is a really fine, it's black and white. Right. But, um, but this is early, early Newman mm-hmm. before Cool Hand Luke and the Hustler and HUD. And right. Those. Boy, he was great. He was my hero. Yeah. My mother, uh, she was, uh, he, he was her guy. So growing up, there was a lot of Paul Newman talk uh, in our household. And again, he's just, he just seems so effortless. Um, I know he worked at his craft, but it, you never get the sense that he doesn't just show up and Paul Newman the thing. No, no. He was a, I think he was a really hardworking guy. Oh, I'm sure. And that's how you do come across as And he did theater too. Um, he was, there's a film of him of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, a Tennessee Williams play. Oh, really? I think it was him. It was, he did it with Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, wow. Holy cow. On Broadway? Well, this is a film. I don't know oh, if they, okay. they had done the play first, but the film is, I think Burgess, I mean, um, God, it was Burl Ives or somebody plays Big Daddy, you know. Oh, so, really? It's a, it's a really, another intense performance. Uh-huh. Man, I have, to, I have my work cut out for me. Somebody up there likes me. All right. I'm starting, I know, I know I'm only in my mid to late 40s, but <laughs> I'm starting to get that, uh, that awful sense of, the time ticking and I haven't seen Casablanca and I haven't seen some of these classic movies that yeah. I'm kind of like, I need to start checking my catch boxes. Up. Here. Catch, yeah. Catch up. <laughs> no, I, I, me too. There's a, there's a lot of big holes in my movie going past, I guess. Right. Well, and you're so busy too. It's um like you said, you can't even watch the screeners hand delivered to your home. No, it's so awful. <laughs> That's the worst, much less getting to movies anymore. I'm Britt Morin, and welcome to Teach Me Something New, a new podcast from iHeartRadio and Britton Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things. So one day I decided that my expertise might be to become the world's best generalist. So how do you learn about everything? The answer? Make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. This show is about inspirational thinkers, scientists, artists, and CEOs, and the things they've learned that have transformed their lives. Listen to Teach Me Something New on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe now and come along with me as we all learn something new. Uh, so in this thing, they, they go through the, the con, which is so dense and layered. Um, and they never explain, there's never, I feel like nowadays in movies, they would have the scene where they get together and explain what they're going to do. It just sort of unfolds, which is so great for the viewer. Well, it's, 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 it is, it is cool for the viewer, but it's, it's also a deliberate directorial choice, I think, because what's really going on is that they're 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 doing the big con the mm-hmm. sting on on Doyle Lonigan on Robert Shaw's character and at the same time they're stinging the audience the sure. the, the movie the movie the, the moviegoer right they're getting conned right 
which is that's the that's sort of the inner game I think uh-huh. of the director uh, in the on the director's agenda. Um, he, like Robert Shaw, we're being given pieces of information and we're being, we're being told one story, but they're withholding mm-hmm. the real story and the right. real plan that Redford and all of these guys and Newman and these guys have cooked up. So we get we get kind of hoodwink too mm-hmm. which it, in, but it's fun because we're you know we're we're, we're eventually let in on the scene right. robert shaw's character and that's part of the whole plan too he doesn't even know he's been swindled he doesn't know who these guys were mm-hmm. all he knows is that he's lost a shitload of money right and there's no way for him to get it back because it's too risky it's too dangerous he's got to get his ass out of there yeah but but that's and that's what they've always wanted. They wanted we got to take him without him knowing uh-huh. he's being taken. Right. Brilliant. Right. Even though I think Redford, as his character's instinct, would be uh, for him to know that he was the guy who got him back for Luther. Against his better judgment, he he knew he had to you know yeah he had to sit back. Uh, so that great final twist, of course, uh, with with the cops or I guess the, the fake FBI. cops, yeah, the feds being in on it, yeah. Um, the one thing I couldn't figure out is, was Charles Durning in on it the whole time? No. Okay. They they kept uh, – his name is uh, Schneider. Uh-huh. He's the he's Bunko uh, from uh, from Juliet, and they, he's followed uh, Hooker, Robert Reffer's character, to Chicago. Right. They needed him to be uh, – to, to get Lonigan out of there at the end. Mm-hmm. They needed him. So that was his one job, basically. That's why when they went into the FBI warehouse thing, Mm -hmm. they needed him there to see that Hooker was going to turn on on Gondorf, on Pauline's character. And uh, because without Snyder, they wouldn't have been able to hustle the mark out of there and... and, uh, yeah, you, you gotta you gotta kind of see it a couple of times to get all those like. Oh, for sure. It's um, I couldn't, I just couldn't quite tell at the end was Durning in on it or was he? No. Uh, he was also a bit of a mark. Duped, right? Totally duped. Yeah, yeah. It must be so much fun as a writer to put together a grifter story like this. Well, yeah, it was based on a book. Oh, uh, I don't think by I, I think the 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 writer that you mentioned. Um, gotta look that up. But it the the screenwriter, David Ward. I think Ward made. Been the guy that wrote the book. Okay, where all were these characters? He was he was fascinated by, uh, you know, by con artists mm-hmm. and grifters, and and I think this movie is based on one of his his books. And I'm gonna one day I'm gonna find that book. Right. I, I just first love edition. this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they certainly. I know Steven Soderbergh has kind of tried to carry the mantle of uh, some of these grifter type movies. With uh, he seems to be obsessed with that genre with the Ocean's Eleven movies, yeah, and the one he recently did, the Logan Lucky movie. Um, but they sure they sure don't do them like this anymore. They don't do them, like you know. That. <laughs> I hate to be that the old guy saying <laughs> they don't make <laughs> them like that anymore. I know, That's I know. True. Well, this I mean, the Sting set the bar really, really high uh, for this kind of yeah, you know, this kind of story. And um, all right, so we finish up here with a. A little bit of trivia that I pulled. Um, this I didn't know. It It is still, if you adjust for inflation, a top 20 all-time grossing film. 
Really? It is number 19 for adjusted inflation box office. Good Lord. Uh, so in today's money, it would have been an $800 million grossing movie. So it was beyond a, a hit of the day, aside from the Academy Juggernaut. Yeah, which is amazing. Um, the Universal backlot where they filmed it, uh, the diner was the same diner from Back to the Future, which is kind of fun. There you go. Know. <laughs> I love that diner. Uh, and the great Edith Head, which uh, I'm sure you've been to Universal, the, the costume building there, the wardrobe building is the Edith Head building. Sure. Um, she won her eighth and final uh, Academy Award. And her quote afterward in, or in the acceptance speech was, just imagine dressing the two handsomest men in the world and then getting this. So it kind of says it all. Sweet. <laughs> uh, and then we finish with uh, what Ebert said. This movie is a complete disappointment. I always like to, to go through and see what uh, Roger Ebert said about these movies uh, before we finish with our five questions. And Ebert gave it four stars. No surprise. Is that four out of four or four out of five? Four out of four. There you go. Top rating. Uh, he said the movie has a nice, light-fingered style to it. He'll gently kids the 1930s with his slight exaggerations of fashions and styles. And he's awfully good at maintaining a kind of off-balance pacing. We can never quite pin Newman and Redford down. They're always sort of angling into scenes, uh, making enigmatic statements under their breath, and staying at least a step ahead of us. Uh, which I thought was interesting. That is part of... Like you said, part of the viewer's experience is being conned a bit yeah. as well. Very cool. Uh, all right. And now five questions with Mr. Tony Shalhoub. Uh, the first movie you remember seeing in the theater. Wow. You know, I've racked my brain on this one. Um, I Does the animated count? Anything counts. Uh, yeah. It might have been, you know, being taken at a very young age to see Sleeping Beauty or right. one of those Disney mm-hmm. extravaganzas. Um, although I, I think one of the first movies that I, one of live action film that I saw, and I didn't look this up, I should have Googled it, but there was a movie, and I think it was out of Disney, the Disney Studios, it was called Emile and the Detectives. I think. Do you know okay. anything about this? This was like a kids movie mm-hmm. where the the characters are the leads are all kids, and there's this young boy who's um, I don't know, he's maybe ten or eleven or something, who solves this mystery or this crime, and he's like a kid detective. And I just remember being kind of charmed by that whole idea that you know kids acting like. Mm-hmm. Doing what grown-ups are supposed to be. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things, too, in movies. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to actually – I got to get back to that. So that that was cool. Um, yeah. I, I have to Is go with, with those two. I All guess. right. No, that's yeah. great. Uh, do you remember the first R-rated movie you saw? I think for me the first R-rated film would have been Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, okay. Where uh, I never had this experience in the theater where, where the violence mm-hmm. was so – uh, so graphic and so kind of, I mean, deeply troubling, mm-hmm. brilliantly done. Yeah. And, 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 and another really terrific art, artful film, mm-hmm. I think. Um, but, but I think, uh, I had the sense when I was watching, I, you'd have to remind me what year that came out, but I'm pretty, I was, you know, fairly young mm-hmm. when that came out. I just remember thinking, Jesus, this is, I, I, I probably shouldn't be 
witnessing this uh, by myself in a theater. It's just, right. It's really, it was kind of in, in your face. Mm-hmm. Great movie, though. Unbelievable film. I'm sure that'll, someone will pick that at some point yeah. for, for this. And there's an interesting side sidebar to that, too. Uh, you know, um, when that movie first came out, uh, I think it was somebody in Newsweek that was reviewed. Do you know the story? I don't think so. Very. It just panned the film. Oh, really? I can't remember who the reviewer was. It was David Denby, one of the Newsweek critics. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. The the, the point is, is that he thought it was, you know, exploitive and and, and, and gratuitous and just just awful and, um, you know, kind of of pornographic in a a way, in a a violent sense. And... um, and the movie almost closed. It was, it was, you know, it got, but, but I think Warren Beatty just kept, I think putting in his own money was one of the producers, right? And mm-hmm. so he just kind of kept it in one or two theaters in New York. And he just was determined. He was very proud of it. And over time, a matter of weeks or months, oh, wow. the word of mouth started to spread and, and, it sort of got this kind of cult following, and it just mm-hmm. grew and grew and grew. Cut to a number of months later, the same critic goes back and sees it again <laughs> and gives it a rave review. Wow! And says, "I was mistaken. This is it was reflecting the violence of the Vietnam War. This is what Mister you know Warren Beatty's whole thing was. Uh-huh. The Arthur Penn was the director. Yeah, I think so. And um, I, I just think that's a fantastic." Yeah, being an actor and having to deal sometimes with you know good and bad right. reviews, um, I think just 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 goes to show you know it's super it's, interesting it's all about the timing. Well, and that's something that just letting a movie take its time to find an audience is just something you would never ever see today. It would be almost impossible. You know, everything almost is about that first weekend, and yeah. And the point is, is that now we look at that movie as one of the you know. Uh, in, in, in terms of American cinema, as a, it has a real, a, there's a real placeholder there. Mm-hmm. Easily could have folded up in a matter of days and been, you know, put kind of on the trash pile, absolutely, and only seen, you know, by kind of real super, you know, super film geeks mm-hmm. like you, for example. Um, I meant that as a comment. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll take it, but it, but it would have it would have been, you know, it would have disappeared. Mm-hmm. I think, and now it's. Right, one of the it makes classics. you wonder what else is out there that right. maybe got trashed that mm-hmm. might be a diamond in the rough. Yeah, for sure. Um, will you will you leave a bad movie in oh, the yeah. movie theater? I, 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 my wife and I were she's out there. Um, <laughs> we were talking about this. She doesn't. She look like we'll tough it out, but mm-hmm. I, I there are just I can't do it. Right, I, you know, I just and I haven't walked out of a lot of films. Mm-hmm. A handful, maybe, in my life. Do you remember one? Yes. I remember two. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I think there was a movie, and I think it was in the late 80s, uh, as was a Peter Greenaway film mm-hmm. called uh, The Cook, The Thief, The His Wife, wife and The Lover. Uh-huh. You know, it's one of those enigmatic titles. What is this movie about? Well, it's about a cook, yeah. a thief, and what it turns out. I saw that in the theater. I did, too. Mm-hmm. And um, part of it, at least. I, you know, maybe it's because I'm really 
an unsophisticated boor from Green Bay, Wisconsin. That's possible. <laughs> but this movie was so torturously pretentious. Yeah. And, and they had a great actors in it. I mean, actors I love. Mm-hmm. Uh, Helen Mirren, an early right. Helen Mirren film. And um, Michael Gambon, genius. Mm-hmm. Oh, I made it th- I'm like 20 minutes in and I was— It's a tough movie. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I just—I I just, feel like—and I wasn't— I was younger then, right? And I, you know, life is just too short. I can't yeah. make it. Yeah, so, that's a um, tough movie. There's that one. Um, I'm sure there. The other, the only other one, an, another film with actors that I adore. You know that I long admire uh, the remake of Cape Fear. Oh, sure. Um, that was Robert De Niro and, and Nick Nolte, mm-hmm. I believe, and Jessica, Jessica Lang. Lang. Love Nick Nolte. Love <laughs> De Niro. Well, it's, these are like gods, right? <laughs> right. Couldn't do it, huh? This is a movie that just, just too much. Oh, no. You know, just too, uh, you know, again, and maybe it's that moment in your, you know, in your time when you're, you're just, you're just not in the frame of mind to mm-hmm. watch, um, you know, somebody yeah. in, in that, you know, a family in jeopardy. Right. Yeah, sometimes that, that's, that movie was, uh-huh. I just think it was just so heavy handed. Yeah. And, but you know that's just me. Again, I'm I'm a, a I'm a I'm a boor. <laughs> that's not true. Uh, do you have guilty pleasure movies? You don't strike me as someone who would. Um, I don't know. It depends on what you call a guilty. Ple- I mean, anything by Mel Brooks. I mean, I just I, I oh well, sure. The Blazing Saddles. You know, mm-hmm. Young Frankenstein. Yeah, I'm just I'm there. Um. Don't know if that's a guilty pleasure because no, it's, it's probably just a pure comedic pleasure. Yeah, it's just a comedic <laughs> pleasure. Well, what do you what do you what do you consider? I don't know. Sometimes I think a guilty pleasure is a movie that that most people will probably say is not very good, but you just can't help but watch it. <laughs> uh, but oh, you have um, good taste, know. so I, <laughs> I could see you not having guilty pleasures. Yeah, I I I, I think I just uh, they're for people with too much time on their hands. Well, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, and finally, question five, uh, I call it movie going 101. Uh, when you do get to the movies, uh, do you have a routine? Do you like to sit in the same area or get the same thing from the concession stand? Um, or? Well, there's a, that's a little bit of a conversation too, because, uh, my wife tends to like to sit closer. I don't like to sit too close. Right. Um, yeah, I like to be in the middle, but I'm okay being far back. Mm-hmm. Do you split the difference or do you sit not together? <laughs> <laughs> We sit where she wants to sit. Right. Um, no, we try to split the difference. Uh, those are the other, you know, popcorn, I guess. We mm-hmm. got, that's kind of a, half the reason you go to a movie. Sure. Um, and, uh, and you, but but that's usually accompanied by lots and lots of water. Right. Because I don't want to, you know, just like. Yeah, I don't do the soda thing, so. No, don't, don't do soda. All right. Are well, we good? We're, I'm good. Are you good? Well, this was fun. Thank you. Well, this is a huge treat for me. I, uh, one of the first movies Jim and I saw in high school together uh, was Barton Fink. Oh, man. And that uh, is still one of my all-time favorites. I probably watched it 20 times in college. Really? And uh, and you're, you're part of That was my introduction to you, and it was just uh, so great. So this has been a real treat. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Tony. Love, love being here. Wow. Well, that was a treat for me. I hope everyone enjoyed that. Uh, Tony is such a nice guy and just as uh, warm and friendly as I hoped he would be. And he, uh, it's kind of fun. It's 
oh, about 2.30 now, and he finished his interview. And he will be headed down to Broadway in just a few hours uh, to take the stage in his musical, The Band's Visit. Um, it is just so cool to, uh, to, to know that these actors just every day, it's their job, so they go to Broadway get on stage and do uh and do a Broadway musical. Like that's a job. Can you believe that? It's amazing. So Tony was great and his insights on the sting were awesome and uh just a good guy. That was a lot of fun for me. So uh hope everyone enjoyed listening. Uh and until next time, uh maybe why don't you book a trip to New York and go to Broadway yourself because it's not all about movies. engineered and scored by Noel Brown from our podcast studio at Pond City Market, Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, I'm Joe Levy, and on the latest episode of Inside the Studio, I sat down with one of the all-time great singer-songwriters, James Taylor. We talked about his new album, where his music comes from, and how telling his life story through his songs has helped him. Music saved my life, but I was lucky also to survive. I did some very stupid some some years that were were just really high risk unnecessarily so and a lot of people around us died you know so join me joe levy editor-at-large at billboard for this and other in-depth conversations with the biggest artists in music listen on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get podcasts the only way is through a new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. This season, Notre Dame women's basketball coach Muffin McGraw is battling a losing record. Every game knowing you're supposed to win, that really weighs heavy on your shoulders. And I think I said at one point, wouldn't it be great to be the underdog again? My husband said, be careful what you wish for. And here we are. Listen to The Only Way is Through, available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.